Holman Jenkins is a member of the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. He writes the column Business World, which appears twice a week on Wednesdays and Saturday in the Journal. And he was born in Philadelphia, received his bachelor's degree from Hobart and William Smith Colleges, and has a master's degree in journalism from Northwestern University. He often writes about energy, COVID, and the world of the media and telecommunications. Holman Jenkins, when you are writing a column for the Wall Street Journal, how long does it take? Uh, it takes all my life or it takes 15 minutes. It's, it's hard to say. They're always hatching away. Uh, some of them go through 50 drafts. Some come out my fingertips in a, a matter of uh, seconds. It's just uh, it's more the continual learning and processing and noodling about information and about our world that really uh, that's the process. The writing itself happens or it doesn't. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's just very laborsome. You know, today I can get on, I can go through Google. I can go through the Wall Street Journal. I can find all of your columns. And I suspect, maybe not, that when you started, you couldn't do that. And it, the question is, has that changed the way people interact with you? Uh, I interact with everybody now by email almost exclusively. Once in a blue moon, I'll actually get on the phone and talk to somebody for an hour, and it'll take me back to the back to the 80s when I started this. This is when I was on the phone all the time. Uh, you know, the thing that strikes me most is I used to do a lot of research, uh, of course, as all journalists do, but I'd have to go to a library and look at microfiches, and you could look at different newspapers around the country and read stories on the same subject, but they'd all be very different. They'd have different takes and different emphases. So you get something different from the Baltimore Sun than you get from the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times. Now you go everywhere, and it's like the same story is written by the same person for all the newspapers because because of the Internet and social media and all that, they've already agreed on a consensus, and so they all take exactly the same tack on every story. That's the thing that strikes me most. You just don't get the diversity of view and analysis. I'm not talking about ideological. I'm just talking about different people seeing different things in a story. What's your deadline for your Wednesday and Saturday column? Uh, You know, it's usually, I think we're trying to get it out earlier and earlier so we can put it online and so we can get the early editions uh, printed at lower cost. So I think I'm supposed to be done by 6 p.m. But uh, sometimes I'm typing up to the last minute. Sometimes the column is sitting there for my colleagues when they come in in the morning because I've gotten up at 7 and, and written it. You and I last talked in 2018. Uh, don't need to go back that far, but let's say in the last year, what column that you've written has gotten the most feedback? You know, <laughs> anything having to do with Trump and the election just gets off the chart feedback and not always of the pleasant kind. But I've also written a lot of columns about uh, COVID from the very beginning, and I know readers have especially appreciated those. And, uh, uh, you know, the only reason I can come back to a, a topic 40 times in a year is because readers really respond to it. So that's been, I mean, that really has been one of the most interesting years of my career because I became a big uh, student of this uh, pandemic, and it really, I think it paid off for me and for the readers. We, we had, it, it was a very useful experience for both of us. When we're talking about this, Dr. Fauci is being, this I guess would be my word from watching it, pummeled by the right-wing media world. Um, choose your own words on that, but is, is, why is that going on right now? You know, from day one, from the Wuhan episode and then northern Italy, 
the possibility of hospitals being overwhelmed and the political consequences of that to people's careers and even to the survival of regimes meant that COVID was just completely off the charts politicized. And even Fauci has gone out of his way to admit a few times that things he said weren't necessarily the best advice at the time, but were trying to shape public uh, opinion and perception because the politics in some sense was more important than just giving a straight fact. And now that's coming back to bite him. And it's coming back to bite, you know, I mean, all kinds of politicians. Look at Andrew Cuomo, who was a hero and now is the GOAT. And, and you know, in, in California and in Florida, people have, and in Michigan, governors have been up and down so many times because of this. You cannot, you can't expect people not to react politically to a situation like this. And so I think that's the reason. What's been the most interesting part of watching the COVID story? You know, the problem has always been the uh, asymptomatic cases. The fact that you could have this disease out there and lots of people were spreading it and you didn't know it. And then suddenly it reached a critical mass and and cases descended on the hospitals. And, you know, even if it's just 5% of or or 1% of people who are infected who have a serious case, when you get big enough numbers, and suddenly the hospitals are overwhelmed. And it, it, uh, the whole, the whole ballgame then is how many uh, intensive care beds do you have? If you're like India with only two per 100,000 people, you are in deep, deep trouble when that happens. In New York, we had 30 you know, intensive care beds per 100,000 population, so we could manage. China, they have two or three intensive care beds per 100,000 population. If what's happening in India now and happened in Wuhan began to happen in China, these giant cities of 13 million people like Shanghai, it would just it would end the communist regime. I'm pretty sure that's why they are so uh, dead set to try and suppress any outbreaks once they happen. And that's the thing that, you know, it's that critical mass that overwhelms the medical care system. That's the killer. When I read your column, I often when it comes to COVID, I often say I, I didn't know that particular fact. It seems like you go off into statistics, but if you were to rate the people who have done the best job for the United States in either the media world or the government world, uh, who would you who would you single out? Well, to, to me, there was only two things that ever made sense about how to about how to deal with this: give people the right information so they can protect themselves because that's the only leverage you have over the spread till you have a vaccine and then get the vaccine. So you, I mean, it's ironic, but you have to give Trump or his administration, whoever decided just to throw bureaucratic caution to the wind and throw money at vaccine makers, at every vaccine maker, you know, give them all money, get them all competing, all working to develop this vaccine and get it out there fast. That was the only thing that really is going to, that is the only decision any politician made that I think is really going to make a difference on a large scale. If the decision to move fast and break things on the vaccine. Is there somebody that you, you know, that a, a figure that we all know that you've been impressed with as you've followed this process? Oh, you know, I, I can't even remember all the names, all of the, uh, you know, the, the epidemiologists that people follow on, on, uh, Twitter from uh, Mark Lipsitch at Harvard to Caitlin Rivers at uh, Johns Hopkins uh, all, uh, or Jennifer Nuzzo, who was uh, one of the first people who testified in Congress way back in February and said really smart things about all this. You, I learned a lot from all those people. A lot of them are really great. Even when they're wrong about things, they're wrong in interesting ways and they come back and correct their record. So it's, uh, you know, I, I, there's just a lot of people out there who I've been learning from. There's no one who is my guru. 
Let me go to some of the things you've written. And I, these are out of context, but I'm sure you can fill in the blanks and give the, some uh, reaction to it. Uh, I'll try. You know, it takes me a while sometimes to recall what I wrote about a subject, even when you quote it back to me. But go ahead. I doubt if you'll uh, yeah, you'll remember this one. The modern presidency is such a nonstop fusillade of verbal bourgeois. It's <laughs> it's hard to know when it's serious. You know, it's. I was just thinking about that with respect to the Biden administration. I don't still really understand where they think America and the world is and where we're going. I feel like they just have a media strategy. I felt that way about uh, Trump in a lot of ways, had a media strategy, except when he started riffing. And then at least he showed his mind to you, even if you thought he was crazy. The Obama people seemed overwhelmed by the need to manage the media day to day and didn't have a real view of the world. Uh, that's what I mean. It's, it's, you know, it really goes back to the Reagan era when CNN and the Reagan administration were born in the same year, and you just had to constantly be addressing the media. That's, uh, and, and so it just becomes a big PR show. Well, you write a lot about the New York Times. I want to start by asking you, um, what's the difference this sounds like maybe a silly question, but what's the difference between the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times? If you were to read both of them, what, what do you what do you experience? I think the Wall Street Journal is still trying to play the old role of a, a, a neutral arbiter of what's news. I think the New York Times is exploring a new business model where you try and find a target audience and give them the world as they want to see it. Good or bad? I like our model uh, better. I think what newspapers used to do with uh, and all news organizations in trying to be as objective and factual as they could, uh, I thought that was an important function in society. It has to come from somewhere. A lot of look, the New York Times still does a lot of that stuff in its pages, but of course that's not what gets my attention. It's the stuff where they either are preaching at their audience or where they're trying to feed back to their audience their prejudices and fantasies. What is because, a new, uh, that's how you what does the New York Times do specifically that the Wall Street Journal would not? Oh, uh, there's probably less and less that we wouldn't do. We would take up a lot of the same subjects. I think the New York Times, you know, first of all, they have a broader reach in some ways. They do a lot more cultural stuff. But of course, we're competing with them on that. But I, I, I think uh, we would always hesitate to go towards the inflammatory accusation. You know, someone is a racist or something like that. It's let's give the reader the information and let them characterize the person or the action. I think the New York Times basically would rather give you the characterization than the information. They'd like to tell you what to think rather than give you the ability to uh, sort it out for yourself. Does anybody edit your column? Oh, everybody reads it, and I get a you know a little uh, tweaks here and there for style things. But uh, I notice that I don't get a whole lot of editing. I don't I don't require a lot of editing because I uh, rewrite and rewrite and rewrite until I you know I've got most of the bugs out myself. Back to one of your columns. Um, it's a paragraph. It'll take it a little bit. Virtue signaling is a tired but effective term. Almost all human behavior, except when we're 
at our very best, absorbed in a task is partly about display. And axiomatically, when pressure to conform is highest, the incentive or incentive to investigate before adopting an opinion is lowest. Yeah, I don't think this is an original thought uh, with me. You know, you go back to uh, Walter Lippmann, who talked about the press trafficking and stereotypes 100 years ago. You go back to the 70s, people talked about groupthink. Now, because of the whole explosion of behavioral economics, we talk about availability bias, where basically you're, you judge the value of a proposition or the truth of it by how familiar it is. The, that drives, you know, what drives that is not just economizing on intellectual effort. It's also trying to fit in. The urge constantly to seek the good opinion of other people by echoing their opinions or adopting the views that they think that you think will be approved is, is so relentless and unconscious in human behavior. And it, it drives all. I mean, the reason there's so much group think in the news is exactly that. It's that. It's that desire to be seen as virtuous and in sync and one of the good guys and not one of the bad guys. When you watch the New York Times um, strike the column uh, by the senator from Arkansas, uh, what was your reaction to that? Uh, You know, they ran it and then they fired the guy who ran it. That was the real problem. Uh, I thought it was crazy, but... What it really tells you is that the people who are running the show are afraid. They don't think they can defend their positions uh, except by caving into the social media mob and by the activists in their in their uh, building because they're afraid that they'll be the next target. Somebody will find something they said or did, decide it was racist or cultural uh, appropriation or something like that. And so they're constantly trying to appease these forces that are loose in their building. It's, you know, it's... A newspaper can make a bad decision, but it defends its right to make the decision. In this case, they are, in the New York Times, they're constantly throwing people out the door uh, uh, when the mob gets mad at some decision they made. And that's not how you defend your power to make the choices you have to make as an editor. What are they afraid of? It, it beats me. I imagine lots of people are afraid for their jobs. Once that fear gets loose in a building, if I say or do the wrong thing, my employer will throw me over the side. That changes everybody's incentives overnight. It's got to start from the the top, but you know I'm not inside enough to 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 know what's going on. But I can see from the outside that there's just these relentless uh, occasions where they have to apologize for something they did that wasn't wrong, that was legitimate news judgment, but somebody got mad at it, and so someone in the building has to pay the price. Now this is anecdotal what I'm about to say, and. I'm older, I'm a senior citizen, and I hear this a lot from people of my age. They are saying now, and this has happened in the last, oh, I don't know, six months or so, I am no longer watching television news. I don't like it. They're all on a side, and I'm not getting what I thought I used to get was the truth. Is that? Have you heard this from anybody else? Sure. I'm one of those people. I watch less and less of it myself. So why? What was it? What are they doing that you don't like? Well, I guess it's what we were just talking about. I feel like they're not trying to play it down the middle, uh, that they are all defending their images in front of each other by making sure that they're in sync with whatever the the narrative of the moment is or the interpretation of events uh, that is 
popular among you know elite circles. I guess that's the main thing. People, I mean, there's a whole bunch of people here who, who, in the middle of America who think that it doesn't speak to them for cultural reasons. But you're talking about something different. You're talking about people who were used to a certain kind of news presentation and and objectivity, uh, for whatever the term is worth, who are getting something different now, and it's not what they want. Mr. Jenkins, you write in a column in January, and I'll read it, uh, the, the beginning of the column. My father said Democrats weren't better than Republicans but the two-party system was an American strength, and he supported it by voting a straight-party ticket. It always made sense to me. Later, as a commentator, you quickly appreciate the two-party system for what it is and isn't, or you become an idiot. Say more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, look, when you have only two parties, they have to have a, you know, it's the big tent theory. You have to get into bed with a whole bunch of people who you have nothing in common with, you have different agendas except for some overlap. Parties are coalitions of people with very different aims and, and purposes. So to assign some ideological uh, valence to them and to, to become, you know, hysterically uh, uh, loyal to them doesn't make a lot of sense because it's not how the system works. It's, it's not about uh, purity. It's not about any single uh, – I mean, how, how can Republicans who are, you know – People, pro-family Republicans and pro-capitalism Republicans, people are hard to point out, are find themselves often at odds because, or loggerheads, because capitalism dissolves so many social institutions with its relentless competitiveness, and yet they find a place together in a, in a, in a party. That's that's the nature of our two parties with them. It's a strength, but I don't understand how people get so ideologically and and personally locked into partisanship under a situation where the parties can't really stand for as much as we pretend they do. How, how do you approach it all from a personal standpoint as whether or not you're a member of a party? Uh, well, I was a Democrat for 37 years, basically, because I inherited that from my dad. But uh, I became an independent a few years ago, and I think I've often, more often sympathize with Republicans simply because in the era that I was growing up, we, the overreaching, over-ambitious government was the problem, and the private sector was in, in danger of getting throttled. So in my time, it seemed necessary to, to lead in that direction. And uh, But, you know, I, I, I'm the, one, the person who constantly points out that much of what Reagan got credit for began under Jimmy Carter deregulation, you know, Paul Volcker uh, combating inflation and restoring the dollar. Uh, Even Jimmy Carter uh, preached tax reform before uh, Reagan got a chance to do it. So these important movements in our society happen because they're in both parties, not because they're in one party and not the other. Explain this. Uh, I I don't want to pick on Larry Kudlow, but he for years was on television telling us that tariffs were terrible. And then he went to work in the the uh, Trump administration, and all of a sudden they were they were fine. What's the problem? no? Well, that's not what Larry said because I talked to him about it, and he's uh, he's been on CNBC. Larry is such smooth, careful, uh, and shrewd operator. He can be against things that Trump did and still <laughs> remain his good graces because uh, he basically Larry puts economic growth above everything else, and he saw that. Uh, Trump was good for growth, even if some of the things that Trump did, like tariffs, were bad for growth. But he could, you know, he never championed a thing he didn't believe in, at least as far as I could tell. Uh, I shouldn't have picked on Larry Kudlow because I could have 
mentioned many people on both sides, but let me go to this one then. Um, supposedly during the Trump administration, we spent $7.8 trillion we don't have. Uh, why do all the people who say they're conservative and uh, stick by Trump uh, to the bitter end not see that? Uh, I think that is universal among the parties. Remember, uh, Walter Mondale, who just died uh, during the 80s when he ran against Reagan, thundered on about deficits and about how he had to raise taxes and how this couldn't continue. When you're out of power and there's a boom and the, the, the party that's in power is having a spendathon, all you can do is complain and talk about deficits. So Democrats did it in the 80s and the, and the early 90s. The Republicans uh, did it in the later 90s under Clinton and under Obama. That's what happens when you're the party. Uh, out of power and good times are being had. All you can do is complain about the bill that's going to come due someday. But you can't really – there is no party in favor of curbing deficits until there's a crisis in, the, in, in inflation or in the dollar that forces you to act. And that's the situation we're in now. That, that crisis is out there somewhere. We know it's coming, and we're not going to be able to do anything about any of these things, including curbing Social Security and Medicare costs or – curbing the you know, annual federal deficit until we have some kind of crisis that puts this on the agenda, because otherwise there's no incentive for either party really to do anything about it. What do you think overall what's happened to the dissemination of information in your lifetime compared to when you were growing up to what it is now? Are we better off today or worse off? Well, I find myself better off. Uh, I remember being a kid having to I want to learn about something or even know, get an answer to a simple question about the game of basketball or something, you know, or about I was fixing uh, mini bikes and bicycles. You didn't have YouTube to go and learn things from. You couldn't go to the Internet and get an answer to some question. You actually had to go to the library and dig through books if you actually wanted to know something. The access to information is, you know, I mean, I'm not saying anything original here, but it really does make a huge everyday difference in my life being able to find out things quickly. So that's important to me. But are we drowning in it? Or are we drowning in too many viewpoints? Is it have we become less certain about? We never knew what was true, maybe, but but now we're less certain that we know what is true because we hear so many different versions of events. That maybe is a problem. I, I guess we'll sort it out. We sort out all our other problems, and we still prosper as a species. So I guess it'll be okay. Another topic you write not a, a lot about, but it's enough to to bring this up is climate change and you have a headline on one of your columns in april climate media versus climate science uh and you talk about a book that hadn't come out yet but it's out now and you also had a review in the uh in the journal about that book by stephen coonan uh give us the background on climate media versus climate science well the, uh, joe biden talked about climate change as an existential a threat. There's a, a climate change group called Extinction Rebellion. You can pick up a, a, any op-ed column about climate change in The Guardian or The New York Times or someplace and, and hear that it's, it's a, a threat to the survival of humanity. None of that is true and none of that is in the science and you wouldn't find a scientist saying that. The, it, the, the science is murky. It suggests that there's a warming problem and it's going to have costs. But it doesn't, say that, it doesn't say that society is doomed or civilization is doomed or humanity is doomed. But the media have completely now adopted that rhetoric, and so have politicians. They talk about in terms that so inflate the costs 
of climate change that it's just it has no bearing on what we actually know scientifically about the subject. So in your column, you mentioned uh, a young lady's name, Greta Thunberg. Yeah. <laughs> she's one of those people who, I mean, her, her, she, she's the wrath of God. She's pronouncing a, a climate doom from every podium and shaking her fist at the, at the old people in the room saying, you did this to us and, you know, I'm not going to grow up because of climate change. And simply the science doesn't say that. It doesn't even say that there, I mean, it says that there's going to be, a, a, you know, a warming in the world and there's going to be some shift in population and activities uh, to different zones. You know, agriculture is going to move farther north and that sort of thing in the, in the northern hemisphere over a, a you know, a, a prolonged period of time. It's not going to be conspicuous to us while it's happening. We're going to adjust. And, and every, uh, every model of, of how this happened suggests that the world is going to continue to get richer and healthier and and our societies will become stronger technologically and economically to deal with these changes and it's this not the end of the world you might want to do something about it i'm in favor of a carbon tax as i've written many times but you want to do something that's sane and sensible and proportionate to the actual cost and risk i'm going to read a paragraph from that column and um <laughs> You might have to help me on this because it's a little complicated, but I'm going to read it anyway. There are terms that apply, reification fallacy, equivocation fallacy, for a journalism that loses sight of the world and plain meanings in its quest to situate itself among prefab talking points. Now, what, what is it? Let, let this process run away with itself, you write, and that's how you uh, – uh, get a climate journalism more founded in fantasy than in science with Joe Biden feeling the need to blather about the end of the world. Yes. That's just what we were saying. What, when, when did uh, climate journalism stop really paying uh, attention to the science? I mean, it happened in the last... I remember in the mid-'80s, the Washington Post used to cover this subject of climate change, and they covered it wonderfully with nuance and awareness of all the uncertainties and, and 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 the speculative nature of the climate models that even then were determining uh, this debate. And that all disappeared. Now it's become a moralistic uh, issue where uh, deniers versus believers, the people who are, you know, uh, the, in the pockets of the fossil fuel industry or the people who want to save the planet, which is just a completely worthless debate, except unless your sole purpose is to mobilize public opinion to support one politician and oppose another. How do you know when someone's telling the truth? Someone, when someone who's talking to me is telling me the truth, I guess, uh, I, guess I, I don't really. I mean, some, some people, uh, you have dealings with them over time and, and you learn to uh, rely on what they say because what they say is borne out by subsequent events or subsequent information that comes to you. But, uh, I would assume anybody is telling me the truth or could tell me the truth if they wanted to, given human nature and all the incentives that we have to present ourselves to other people in ways that we hope will be attractive and cause them to respond to us the way we want to. Well, let me let me rephrase it. We have uh, daily here call-in programs where the average person in this country can call up and give us their views. And um, so often you hear somebody say, I read it on the internet. 
uh, or I heard it from this politician, or I read this in a newspaper, I saw this on a cable television news show. And if you've been paying any attention at all, you know that they don't have, well, in some cases, a clue uh, about what the truth is. And that's, I guess I'm seeking your advice on how people can, if they really are interested in the truth, where do they go to find it? Yeah, uh, that's a difficult question. You know, it's the thing that concerns me. We were talking about the newspapers before. I wrote recently that we're basically a niche business, us and the New York Times. Our audience is, you know, 5 million people out in a country of 330 million people. Uh, I mean, we're talking to an elite who, you know, who actually evaluate information, evaluate sources, compare sources, compare uh, claims versus, uh, you know, information they already know. I don't think that's most people. They see something on the Internet and then they take it up for whatever reason it appeals to them and they believe it. I don't know. uh, You know, it's a a difficult situation when uh, you're relying on those people to cast a vote and to express an opinion that shapes our politics and our public policy. But it's a, you know, I hear that all the time, too. I read on the Internet, well... That's, anybody can say anything on the internet. That means nothing. But at least it's worthwhile. It's, it's, it's a good thing that the people cite sources. You know, at least they they are aware that they don't possess the information from God. They got it from somebody, and maybe that will introduce to them the idea that maybe they should start trying to evaluate the credibility of the sources they consult. What's the column you most often read, other than your own? Uh, I don't know. It depends what I'm interested in at the time. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, if you're going to you follow the, uh, you know, the legal scandals involving the Trump uh, Russia thing, or or even the Derek Chauvin thing, uh, you know, the, uh, which is his name just escaped from my mind. The uh, former uh, New York prosecutor who works for who writes for National Review, uh, um, McCarthy. Yes, McCarthy. Exactly. A- A- Andrew McCarthy. Uh, I, yeah, I would read him. Yeah, you know, I used to read uh, George Will very religiously just because I always thought he was a wonderful stylist and had such a, a clear thinking. But I haven't done that as much anymore. I'm just, you know, I'm relentlessly trying to absorb information about what I need to write about next, and so I don't, I don't really have time to follow my old favorites anymore. Do you have somebody in your lifetime that's your favorite writer? Not necessarily a column, just a, your favorite writer. So, uh, you know, I, I used to uh, really enjoy Gary Will's books, about, you know, the book about George Washington or the book, book about uh, the Gettysburg Address. I always, I, even today, if you write something in New York Review of Books, I'll always read it. I might not agree with him. Sometimes his, his whole attitude puts me off, but I still like his intelligence and I like the way he writes. If you're going to recommend a book to somebody who follows your column or likes politics or all the stuff we've been talking about, what would be your favorite, maybe most recent book? I don't know. These are difficult questions because I have stopped reading books in any sense that a person uh, you would relate to yeah, because uh, I have them all on my Kindle and I read bits and pieces here and there of, of almost everything. So I don't have a, uh, a, I mean, I'm reading a book right now about the Cuban uh, Missile Crisis, which is a, you know, a very it, it it reminds you how how human are the people who make these decisions, how badly informed, and how bad their ability to foresee the future is. So that's a, I mean, anytime you you, you get bring that something away from a, a book, 
uh, is a book worth reading because human beings are just the decision making we do, the, the information processing we do, the understanding of our world is really so subpar so compared to what we like to think it is. One last uh, couple questions about communications. You do write uh, about the communications companies, and one of those that you've recently talked about is AT&T. What do you think of what's happened to AT&T? I'm one of the few people who is slightly enthusiastic about their idea of combining their wireless business with a uh, with a big uh, you know entertainment business because I think that the, this whole com- this competition among suppliers of internet connectivity is going to become so fierce and it's so expensive to continually upgrade these systems like you know with 5G or gigabit broadband that it's going to be hard to get paid for that unless you can attract customers to stay with you by giving them a sweetener like a, you know HBO Max or something like that. That's a, that's a reason to sign up for AT&T and not switch tomorrow to another wireless carrier. So I think that this model could work, but you're, it's in the hands of, of phone company executives who are are not – you know, I mean, they're not versed in Hollywood. They're not versed in consumer marketing the way this new industry uh, structure is going to require them to be. So you wonder if they're going to pull it off, even if it is an idea with promise. What part of the media and you're just your day to day research and all that do you not pay attention to? I do not pay any attention to Twitter, except if there's something from some if there's somebody whose thoughts I want to consult immediately i'll go and look at their twitter feed but i do not sit around and read twitter and see what people are saying on it nor do i participate in twitter because i realized early that uh, i would get myself in deep doo-doo if i <laughs> if i you know let myself sound off the way i want and the way other people do on twitter you do facebook uh i have a facebook page it's i, I don't think i've looked at it in two years but if there's people in uh from my past, like from high school, who I want to get in touch with or have some exchange with, that's the first place I'd go and, and, and find them. Holman Jenkins, you can read you on Wednesdays and Saturdays if you have the hardback copy of the paper, but you can read it anytime if you don't. Uh, right now, uh, what percentage of people read you online versus the hard copy newspaper? I don't know. The column appears on Wednesdays and Saturdays. I have the distinction of being the one columnist who writes twice a week for the journal. Uh, I I read myself online. I assume that most people do. I guess the, you know the vast majority of our subscriptions, I guess by now, are online. I assume that's uh, that's how most people read me. But I'm surprised. I talk to people from time to time, and they tell me how much they like the print edition and sitting down with the newspaper. I don't know if they really mean it, and they really do it as much as they say they do, but they still value having it. So, And as long as that's true, uh, you know, I guess we'll keep putting it out, even though it's very costly to cut down a tree and turn it into paper and deliver it to your door. Well, I'm one of those, uh, and I'm one of those that plopped down $5 on Saturday for the hardback edition. So keep it going really as long great. as you can. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Holman Jenkins, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's always fun. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank mm-hmm. you.